Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, beginning to read at verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reports to David all the words of this entire revelation. Thank you very much, David, for reading for us. Please uh, let me encourage you to keep your Bible open there at 2 Samuel chapter 7, page 310. Uh, Just as we begin, let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we've already sung tonight, you have given us great promises. And we pray that as we look at your word tonight, you would help us to look with care and that you would show us your goodness to us in these promises made to David. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am awful at buying presents. I have 
just no imagination for it. But last year, um, following the advice, actually, of someone in this congregation, I bought uh, for my wife for her birthday um, a gift token um, for a uh, massage at a spa in town. And let me tell you, it went down a storm. Um, In terms of brownie points, it was a bit like hitting the jackpot. Um, I got a lot of credit for that present. Now, when my wife opened uh, the envelope and pulled out the gift token, her reaction was not, I love gift tokens. Oh, thank you so much. I'll go and put it with the other ones. Of course not. She said, a massage. I can't wait. And immediately she was anticipating the joy of a good massage. She only redeemed it a few weeks ago, actually, but it was well worth the wait. She's only just stopped smelling of strawberries, actually. It's extraordinary. But anyway, all the way through to Samuel, as we look at the reign of King David, we are looking at a token intended to raise in us anticipation for the promise of a greater king. David's reign was undeniably great, but it was a token, not the fulfillment of all that God had promised. As we come to these verses in 2 Samuel chapter 7 tonight, we find David on top of the world. But God explains to him that while his current situation looks good, the promises are not yet fulfilled. And his reign as king is just a token, a symbol, a sign of far greater things to come. In these first seven verses, we have a corrective word. A corrective word is given. In verse one, everything seems to be going well for King David. Have a look at verse one. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. That's the setting for this account. The king in his palace, blessed by the Lord with peace. To understand why this is such a high point in Israel's history, you have to go back a thousand years. That's when the history of this nation of Israel really began, and it gives us the setting for the whole story of the Bible, so it is worth paying attention to. A thousand years before David, God made promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. Here's Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to him, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Familiar words to those who have been coming to church for a while. God had promised Abraham a land, and that his descendants would become a great nation, and that he would bless them. And now, a thousand years later... His descendants, the nation of Israel, were finally in the land. They were looking greater than ever. The king was settled in his palace, which we read in verse 2, was made of cedar, a luxury material. And the Lord had blessed him with peace from all his enemies around him. So as David stood in the sun on the roof of his palace, surveying the city of Jerusalem, it felt to him as though the ancient promises were all but fulfilled. So verse two, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. We saw last week that the ark of God represented God's presence among his people. And since Israel's escape from Egypt, it had been kept in a tent, which made a lot of sense for a traveling nation. But now that the people are settled in the land, no longer on the move, blessed by God, enjoying peace, a tent just doesn't seem appropriate to David anymore. Surely God deserves something grander than a tent, thought David. And you can see his point. Why should I have a palace and the Lord have a tent? 
It seems like such a no-brainer that Nathan the prophet doesn't hesitate to give it the green light in verse three. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But even the most well-intentioned plans can prove misguided, if not guided by God's word. David has made a plan to build a house, a temple for the ark of the Lord, and he's run it by Nathan, but neither of them have consulted the Lord himself. And so from the Lord, a corrective word is given. Verse four, that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And the message was basically this. I didn't tell you to build a house. Take a look from verse five. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers who, command, who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see, after Israel had escaped from Egypt, God gave them detailed blueprints for the tent called the tabernacle where the ark of God was to live. Very detailed blueprints. Nearly half the book of Exodus is blueprints for the tabernacle. But since then, he's not said one word about a temple. And yet David's on the phone to the architects. Hold your horses, David. I haven't told you to build a house. And at this point in Israel's history, God wanted to live in a tent because of all it symbolized. He lives among his people, not aloof from them, but with them. If they're in tents, I'm in a tent. He goes with his people wherever they go. If they're moving around, I'm moving around. And while the people of Israel were no longer in tents and were no longer moving around, the tabernacle tent was a symbol that this was not their eternal home and that the promises had not yet been fully fulfilled. Yes, David's son, Solomon, would go on to build the temple, but only when directed to do so by the Lord. And the high point of David's reign, when Israel were most at risk of thinking that the promises were being finally fulfilled, was not the moment to build a sign of permanence that might have confirmed their thinking. A corrective word, not you, David, not yet. David thinks that the story of God fulfilling his promises to his people is in its final chapters, but God's about to show him it's only halfway through. In the next few verses, David hears that much has passed, but much is yet to come. In verses 8 to 11, we see this second point. The promises are renewed. To begin with, God gets David to look back over his life. Take a look for, at verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from, the, from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off your enemies from before you. David certainly has come a very long way, and it's been a moving tale from the field to a palace, from a shepherd to a king. And throughout the journey, the Lord has been with him. In all those years of serving in Saul's army, then fleeing his violent jealousy, in all the highs of military triumph, as well as the darkest valleys of exile, the Lord has been with him. The Lord has been his shepherd, as he would write in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone. 
and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Much has already happened, but then look at the next three words in verse nine. Now I will. Now pause there. This is the point where the story turns. Up until now in God's message to David, it's all been about what God has done. I have not dwelt in a house. I have been moving from place to place. I have moved. I took you from the pasture. I have been with you. I have cut off all your enemies. Now I will. You see the point? Even before we see what God will do, the point is clear. The story isn't over. As he turns from what he has done in the past to what he will do in the future, it quickly becomes clear that God's renewing the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And by doing so, he's showing that they're not yet fulfilled. Look at the second half of verse nine. Now I will make, you, make your name great. A quote taken straight from Genesis 12. Verse 10, I will provide a place for my people and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. That's the promised land, which they're in, but clearly not in such a way that they're finally secure. Halfway through verse 11, I will also give you the rest from all your enemies. He had promised to bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. And he's renewing his promise to do that to the point that all enemy threats will be gone. To begin with, it seems perhaps a little bit strange that God says in verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies, since in verse 1, we saw that he already had given him rest from all his enemies. But as we carry on reading through 2 Samuel, we see that the peace of verse 1 didn't last. His people were disturbed, and he had to flee from his palace when his son Absalom rebelled against him. Yet though the peace didn't last, the promises prevailed. And once again, God gave him rest from all his enemies. By renewing the promises to Abraham, God helps David to put his current moment into perspective. You've come a long way, but you're not there yet. Notice as well how God helps David to have a right view of himself. In verses 1 and 3, David is referred to as the king. Verse 1, after the king was settled in his palace. Verse 3, Nathan replied to the king. But God refers to him as my servant David. Verse five, go and tell my servant David. Verse eight, now then, tell my servant David. Others may see a king, and a king he was, but the Lord sees the shepherd boy who he found from the field. And while kings are prone to speak of the people they rule over as my people, the Lord repeatedly reminds David whose they are by speaking of my people Israel. Verse 7, 8, 10, 11. My people, Israel. David, you may be a king, but you're still my servant. And you rule over Israel, but they're still my people. You're a part of this story, a big part, but it's bigger than you. You may be riding high, but the promises are not yet fulfilled. There's more still to come. And so the promises are renewed by the Lord to show David that their fulfillment is still in the future but also that he remains deeply committed to bringing them about for the sake of his people, Israel. But the most spectacular verses in this passage and some of the most spectacular words in all the Bible come in what follows. Because from the second half of verse 11, three to 16, a greater king is guaranteed, one whose kingdom will never end 
and who will do what David had aspired to do for the Lord by building him her house. Back in verse five, God had asked David, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? And there are two answers here to that question. Two answers. The first is in the second half of verse 11. Take a look down at the second half of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Do you see, David won't build a house for the Lord. The Lord will build a house for David. When God talks here about a house, he's, he's not talking about a building. He's talking about a household, a dynasty. We see that from verse 12. God says, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. God guarantees David a household beyond his lifetime that will be stable, established, and secure. But then the second answer to the question is, uh, is here. Uh, the question, uh, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? The second answer is this. You won't, but one of your offspring will. That's there in verse 13. He, that is one of your offspring, is the one who will build a house for my name. And here God is talking about a house in the sense of a building, a temple. Someone is going to build the Lord a house to dwell in, but it's not David, it's one of his descendants. You see, God is saying to David, a greater king is guaranteed, and he will do for me what you aspired to do. He will build me a house to dwell in. Now look at the greatness of this promise. The house or dynasty of David and his offspring won't be like the house of Saul because his offspring will be adopted into the family of God as his son. And as his son, he will be disciplined when he does wrong, but his love will never be withdrawn. Look down at that in verse 14. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. God's commitment to his people here is so utter that it won't be dissolved by the death of David because his offspring will succeed him. The sin of his successors, when he does wrong, I will punish him, but my love will never be taken away. Or the passing of time, verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your, king, your throne will be established forever. His commitment to his people will not be dissolved by sin or death or time. This is nothing less than a watertight guarantee of a greater king. But these verses aren't looking to a one-time fulfillment. In various ways, they'll be fulfilled by more than one of David's offspring. And indeed, they were. After David died, the Lord did indeed raise up his offspring to succeed him. Solomon became king. The Lord established his kingdom and his throne, and he reigned over Israel for 40 years. In that time, he built the temple for the Lord, a house for my name. Over the centuries that followed, David's offspring did do wrong, and they were punished, most obviously with two exiles from the land. And yet God's love was never taken away from the house of David. And the people of Israel kept looking back to those promises made to Abraham, renewed to David, longing for the day when they would be finally and fully fulfilled. The peace didn't last, but the promises prevailed until a time a thousand years later, recorded in the very first verse of the New Testament with the announcement, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. And at last, a greater king has arrived. Through Jesus' life, who he was became increasingly clear to those around him. Until one day, talking to his disciples, he asked them, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied by giving Peter the name Peter, which means the rock. And he said to him, on this rock, I will build my church. You see, Jesus was the culmination of the promise of a household, a dynasty for David. And he was also the one who would build a house, a place for the presence of the Lord to dwell. Sure, Solomon built the temple, but Jesus, the greater king, built a greater house. Not a temple, but a church. On this rock I will build my church. Not of bricks, but of people. And he's building it still to this day. God was his father and Jesus was his son, not by adoption, but eternally so. And though he never did any wrong, he was nonetheless punished and flogged and nailed to a cross to win for us rest from those great enemies of sin and death. Sin defeated at the cross, death at the empty tomb. And now alive, ascended, seated on his heavenly and eternal throne, the promises have been secured by Jesus and will be fully and finally enjoyed by all who enter his kingdom by bowing the knee to him as their Lord. As I watched uh, bits of the royal wedding yesterday, um, you didn't think you were going to get through a sermon without a mention of that, did you? Um, as I was looking at that yesterday, um, I, I saw Meghan Markle wave, I, I should probably say the, the Duchess of Sussex, isn't it now? I, I saw her waving and smiling, and I, I couldn't help but think to myself, I'm not surprised you're smiling, love. You have well and truly landed on your feet. I mean, she really has, hasn't she? It's two ways, sure. I mean, Harry has married a very beautiful woman, but she really has done well for herself. I mean, honestly. I think yesterday was probably about the closest thing you can get in this world to a fairy tale. It was extraordinary. Marrying into the royal family, the House of Windsor. She's done very well for herself. (laughs) But look, if you're a Christian here tonight... Your smile should be broader because she's not done as well as you. She hasn't married into an eternal house. One day, for one reason or another, as much as it pains me to say it, the house of Windsor will fail and fall, just as has every dynasty in power before it. But Christian, by bowing the knee in faith to Jesus Christ, you have become part of an eternal house, an eternal kingdom under a perfect king. And while no marriage lasts forever, God's promises to us through our King Jesus will never be dissolved by death or sin or time. I don't know what state you're each in tonight. Some of you, I imagine, will be riding high, loving the sunny weather, the wedding, whatever it is. Others of you, I know, are finding life hard at the moment. Every day is a struggle. But whatever's going on in your heart tonight, this passage is a reminder and an encouragement, perhaps a corrective word, that this is not our eternal home, that there is much more still to come. We need to hear the promises renewed and set our hope firmly on the greater king through whom we will receive them. The token of David's reign should raise anticipation for the kingdom of our greater king. Jesus is our greater king. 
and his kingdom will endure forever. And if you're a Christian, you're a citizen of that kingdom. And right now, King Jesus is in his heavenly palace. He has defeated his enemy, the devil, conquering sin and death. He is building a house called the church in which the Lord is living by his Holy Spirit. And one day, his heavenly kingdom will be united with this world. And all the promises already secured by Jesus will be enjoyed by us, his people. If you're not a Christian, God offers these promises to you tonight. It was a good thing to live under the rule of King David, I'm sure. But I can tell you personally, it's a greater thing to live under the rule of King Jesus. He's a kind king who, lo- who lives among his people, who promises us an eternal home, secure from danger or sadness. His is a kingdom that will last forever. And you can be part of it too if you let Jesus be your king. Your rebellion against him, forgiven. Because he who did no wrong was willingly punished in our place. There is no greater king. There's a tradition in my family, which um, I think it was my mum who began it, and I've carried it on um, in my family as well. Uh, It's basically every Easter morning, she used to get up before the rest of us, head downstairs and turn the stereo on to max. And she used to play um, uh, the, um, the Alleluia Chorus from Handel's Messiah. Um, and so it would come through the floors and all, all of us would, would suddenly wake up and kind of open our eyes to the sound of the Alleluia Chorus. And these wonderful words, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever, forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords, Alleluia, Alleluia. As Christians, whether you're feeling high or low, on a mountaintop or in a valley, we're to fix our hopes on the day when we will awake, open our eyes, and find ourselves standing around the throne, that eternal throne, worshipping our greater king, and ultimately the day when we will join in that eternal chorus to the king of kings and the lord of lords. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Alleluia. Let the token of David's reign fill us with anticipation of the reign of King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, fix our hearts on our eternal home, we pray. On the promises you've made, on our King, the Lord Jesus, and on the day when his kingdom will come in all its glory. In Jesus' name, amen.